I don't know how to follow that because I'm the pastor. So appreciate me. No, that's not all what I should say right here. Uh, what I should say is uh, what is true is that I really do value being a part of this community. I'm so thankful. I appreciate you as a person who shows up here and gives and serves. And I know our, I speak for our staff and our even our volunteer leaders. Um, it's an incredible season to be here and uh, really grateful. Nearing two and a half years being here, which has gone really, really quick. I'm excited for the next two and a half and even more. Um, and so uh, we're in the middle of this series called The Table. And before we talk about what the table means, I want to uh, share a name with you. Maybe you've heard this name. Maybe this is a brand new name to you. It's the name Charles Blondin. Now, Charles Blondin was one of the first people to cross Niagara Falls uh, with only a balancing pole walking on a straight wire. Here's a picture of Charles going across. This is in 1946 was his very first crossing. And rightfully so, the guy got pretty popular for doing this. And so he not only would do it uh, with a balancing pole and on a wire, he began working on cooking omelets in the middle of this Niagara Falls. If you've been to the falls, you're like, how is that even possible? But it's a thing. And so he started to gather just tons of crowds. Eventually, promoters said, hey, we can make money off you. Do you want us to be your agent? He was like, sure. And so a particular time, Charles Blondin was going across. Now, the first time he did it with the normal pole, and everyone's like, that's incredible. The next time he goes out, does his egg omelet routine. And the next time he comes back and he pulls out one of these, a wheelbarrow. And he looks to the crowd, and they'd gathered by hundreds by now, and said, do you believe that I can cross the Niagara Falls pushing this wheelbarrow? Which is incredible, obviously. And they say, uh, yeah. And so they say, yes, Charles, we believe. He says, yeah, 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 but do you really believe that I can cross the Niagara Falls pushing this wheelbarrow, one wheel here. This is not like a rig, like a real wheelbarrow. He said, and they say, yes, of course, we believe you can do it. So Charles turns uh, to the promoter and says, do you believe I can do that? Do you believe I can take this wheelbarrow and push it across? He says, yeah, I believe it. I, I, I'm your agent. I believe you can do this. He says, yeah, hold on. I don't think you understand. Do you really believe that I can do it. He says, yes, Charles, I believe you can do it. I hired you. I brought you here. Charles looks at him and says, okay, jump in. <laughs> I don't even know the rest of the story. So maybe Charles died. I don't know. We have no idea. Uh, but he, he ends, ends, ends up getting in the wheelbarrow and at least attempting to push across. So what I love about that story is that we don't have those kind of moments in our life necessarily of having to cross falls or something much more physically dangerous, but all of us know what it feels like to be presented with a risk, an opportunity to put yourself or your money or your job or your reputation or your, your relationships on the line. We know what that feels like. Here's what many of us are faced with because I believe this is what faith is. Faith is saying, I don't know how this is going to turn out, but yes, I believe. Jesus, I believe you can heal my marriage. Jesus, I believe you can provide for me financially. Jesus, I believe that you want to reach my friends and coworkers more than I do. Jesus, I, I believe. It's, it's jumping in the wheelbarrow. But here's what many of us end up doing. And this is me first. We end up sitting in a fancy West Elmish type chair just like this, right? We sit here. 
It's pretty. This is actually really comfortable. I'm not going to lie. I may just preach the rest sitting around just like this. It's incredibly comfortable. And some days I am like you. Monday morning hits, my alarm goes off, and I just, I don't even want to get out of bed, okay? Like, the weekend feels busy. I saw a meme on Facebook I want to share with you real quick. Uh, One of you shared this, I won't rat you out. Trying to get out of bed, like, try again, help, or cancel. (laughs) Like, that's kind of how I feel some Mondays, right? I just, let's just cancel. I don't really want to do that. I'm comfortable. And so when it comes to my faith, instead of risking, instead of choosing the wheelbarrow, I decide Uh, I'm going to pursue things like image. So I invest a lot in clothes. I invest a lot in maybe makeup. I invest a lot in hair. I invest a lot, all these things just to keep up my appearance. I invest in those, maybe even cosmetic surgery or something else. I invest in them. For some of us, it has to do with success or job or certain promotions or bank accounts getting to a certain number or 401ks being padded up and making sure we're good. And so we pursue that at the expense of our kids, at the expense of our marriage, at the expense of our own mental sanity, we decide we're gonna pursue that success relentlessly. For some of us, that's to do with relationships. Instead of risk and put ourselves out there and get in the wheelbarrow, we stay isolated. We only hang out with other Christians. We only listen to Christian radio. We, you know what I'm talking about, right? It's easy, you can just get isolated. Let me ask you the question. I think Jesus addresses this and where we're going in Luke 14. Did God build you for this kind of faith? Or did he build you for the wheelbarrow? Did he build me for a life that's comfortable, that's warm, even sleek and slightly hipster? Is that the life right here that God's really after? Or is he after something more, something greater, something that will take not just me, but all of us to accomplish? I think the answer is found in Luke 14. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn there right now. Some of the scripture will be on the screen for you. Some of it won't. You're not going to want to miss it. You never know what God might say to you. We talked a couple weeks ago when we addressed this whole idea of zero gods. And we have four banners and one in the foyer on your way in. You see it every weekend that make up our vision as a church. These five zeros. And today in Luke 14, I think Jesus hits a zero that if I had to choose one that I sense is nearest to God's heart, it would be this one. And I want to look at Luke 14 because you remember a couple weeks ago we talked about zero gods. And we went through this parable in Luke 14 of all these guys that had excuses, reasons why they couldn't show up to the great banquet. They couldn't be a part of joining Jesus at the table. The first guy, I bought a field. I must go see it. Please excuse me. In the first century, you would not buy a field without checking out. Is this fertile? Is it in a good location? Can I get a good yield from this place? And and so just that excuse alone was a pretty bad excuse. That's number one. Number two, the guy goes, hey, just so you know, I'd love to join you. I know I RSVP'd, but I can't make it. I just bought five yoke of oxen, which again, in the modern day, I don't even know if that equates to like a Ford 350 Lariat or what that is. I'm not exactly sure, uh, but it was a nice possession. It meant you had some wealth. It meant that you had some importance. You had status, but you wouldn't buy five oxen without knowing, are they strong? Can they actually pull anything? Are they worth their way. And so it's a bad excuse. The third guy says, hey, I just got married, so I can't come. This is probably the most legit excuse, by the way, if you're thinking about marriage. That's an okay one. But even then, he had RSVP'd months before. He knew this was coming. He wasn't surprised. And yet they all reject the invitation. They say, I don't really want my seat at the table. I don't want to be a part of the kingdom. And here's where we pick up the parable in verse 21. 
Jesus said that the servant came back and reported this, these excuses, to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered a servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered, it's been done, but there's still room. And the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. Seems a little bit harsh, but you hear the master's heart, right? My, I want my house to be full. If you've ever had a really awesome Thanksgiving or Christmas or birthday party, normally it's not like one or two people sprinkled throughout the house, unless you're a super introvert, which I, I can relate to. It's like, I would love to have a good party. We can invite that one person over. But for most of us, we like big parties. We like a crowd. We like to be together with people that we love and that we know and that they know us. And that's exactly what the master, Jesus, here in this parable is saying. My kingdom, I want it to be full. I don't want anyone to miss out on this incredible feast, this incredible table that I've laid out for them in the kingdom of God. And yet, so many people, they make excuses, and so Jesus ups the ante. Remember who he's talking to, though. If you remember, if you watched online the last couple weeks, you've caught this, that Jesus is talking to a group of Pharisees. Now, we always look down on Pharisees. We say, those guys are bad people. Whenever they come up in the Gospels, we're like, yeah, I'm so glad I'm not like that, right? We all read ourselves into other parts of the story. But Pharisees in general were good guys. They grew up going to church. They kept the law. They were nice people. They made sure they were at church early on Sundays. They tithed all the right things, all the boxes were checked, and yet their hearts were far from Jesus. They didn't really know the heart of God. They were confused about what it meant to be at this table. And so Jesus is feasting with them at a literal table. Remember finger dipping? Okay, this is happening right here. They are all hands in the meal. They are together. They are engaged in the meal together. But the Pharisees and everyone in first century Judaism would have had these classifications they all had categories for people. There were certain people that were excluded, others that were included. And the main two things they were concerned with, if you had either genetic or birth or physical defects, excluded. No questions asked. And if you came from a mixed family line, you weren't like a pure Jew or pure this or that, and you had some mixed blood in there, you were out. No questions asked. No, like your last name, it mattered. It didn't, everything hinged on those two things, defects, physical, or family. It's funny then, and we do this the same way. We may not classify this people. We classify people economically. We say, well, you're poor or you're lower middle class or you're middle class, or you're upper middle class or you're whatever comes after that. I'm not even really sure. And we classify people. It's easy. We say, okay, that's what kind of car they drive. Here's what they probably make. Here's where they live. Here's what they probably earn. Okay, Here, here's what they're wearing. Okay, I can kind of like classify them in my brain. We do it by economics. And in first century Israel, they did it by family and physical purity, physical defects or not. But look at the list Jesus gives. I love this. Jesus is incredible. Because look at the list he gives in verse 21. You already saw it if you're reading along. The owner got angry, ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in who? The poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. This would have ticked them off, okay? D Jesus's new guest list, not approved by the Pharisees, not approved by the good law-abiding Jews who were in the room. It just, no thank you. This is not computing with our idea 
of what it means to follow God. And he says, go out, find them on the roads, country lanes, compel them so my house will be full. And the people I did invite who rejected my invitation, they're not gonna taste it. They're gonna miss out. This banquet I prepared for every single person, they refused it, they've pushed away, they've made excuses. And so Jesus says, I don't care if they're poor, they're crippled, blind, lame, I want them all. Bring them to me, defects and all, they're part of my family. His desire was zero lost people. He wasn't content with having a few friends and some servants. He wanted zero people to be uninvited to the table of God. And here's what I think is profound about this list he gives. See, Jesus doesn't give a ton of reasons. Well, guys, here's why they're poor. Guys, here's here's why they're crippled or blind or lame. Here's why they have all these defects. He, He doesn't even go into that. See, Jesus doesn't care about how someone gets lost. Jesus cares about when they get found. It's true. Jesus, before you came to him, if you have a relationship with him, you know this, he didn't run you through a list of classifications. Well, here's how you sinned, or here's who you slept with, or here's how much you drank, or here's how much you're spending on yourself. I'm sorry, you're gonna have to wait till there's another invitation coming. He doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't sit around and and reason with Pharisees. Well, here's why this happened. There's miracles that later happen in the gospels where they say, who sinned, this person or their parents? Jesus doesn't even address the question. He's like, you're missing the point. The point is I can heal. The point is I save. The point is that in me is eternal, significant, real lasting transformation. He doesn't get concerned and we always get concerned. Well, here's why they're that way. Well, this is how they grew up. They should know better because they were in church before. Now they've walked away or they used to attend this church. Now that who knows where Jesus doesn't care, doesn't care about how they got lost, but he cares infinitely about when they get found. And he speaks to this by who he invites the people that didn't make the list that would have never been on a Pharisee's guest list. He challenges them to take the role of a servant instead of saying, okay, let's discuss who's invited. Jesus says a servant went out. And he found these people and I sent him out. And he's saying the same is true for the reader. You are the servant. You are the one to go out and bring the people from every way, every place, everywhere that they were excluded. Go to those places first. That's the whole reference here in the streets and alleys, or you see it in verse 23, the roads and country lanes. These are all places that were not kosher. These were not okay. Roads and country lanes meant leave the city Leave what's familiar. Go to somewhere that's hard, somewhere where they're mixed blood, they're jacked up, they have a bunch of problems. In fact, there was an entire list that we found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, this archaeological dig where we get many of our sources for the scriptures. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's actually a list that says, here are the defects, here are the problems, and if you have these, you're out. And they're all things like a broken foot, sexual dysfunction, uh, problem seeing. I think all of us have at least one family member who's experienced something that was on that list. I'm not even kidding. It's just all over the place. It would cover maybe even some of us. And Jesus says, go to those people. The people who you don't think are worth the risk, who aren't worth the wheelbarrow, go to those people. And it's those people I want to invite. And he was desperate, willing to risk it all, laid it all on the line so that zero people would be lost. That's why in Luke 15, as we read a couple weeks ago, Jesus tells the story of three things that were lost. Coin, sheep, and the lost son. 
And Jesus wasn't content with, well, I've got this many. I've got 99 sheep. We shouldn't worry about that one random straggler. <laughs> Let him go. It's his fault. He doesn't care. He pursues it. He says, I'm going to chase it down. The woman with the coin didn't say, well, here's how much I have in my savings. This coin is pretty much irrelevant to the equation. She flips the house over looking for the coin. The same thing happens when it comes to the prodigal son. The father doesn't sit there and just kind of stroke his beard and say, well, guys, I'm pretty comfortable with one. One son's good enough. If I lost one, that's all right. It's his fault. He chose the inheritance. He blew it all. He's out of here. I don't have to deal with him anymore. No, he, he literally chases him. He embarrasses himself in the entire neighborhood. They didn't wear a lot of fancy underwear, all right? He's wearing literally a toga, and the dude is running. Just picture that weird of a scene. You're like, there goes Mr. Jones again, like running down the street, showing everybody his business, and yet he's unashamed. He just goes. And that's how Jesus describes his love for his kids. I'm going to run out. I'm willing to risk it all. I'm willing to put it on the line. I'm willing to be embarrassed and let my reputation get tarnished. The same thing happens, um, and you've probably had this, if you have a smartphone or even an iPhone specifically, you get these things called Amber Alerts. How many of you have gotten one of these on your phone before? Just quick show of hands, making sure everyone's phones work all right. Okay, pretty much everybody. That's good to know. But something happens. Now, this is maybe bad to admit, but something happens when I get an Amber Alert on my phone. Normally, it's I'm like in the middle of a meeting, I'm writing an email, I'm working on a message, I'm at, at lunch or dinner with somebody, and I get those, and I look, look at it for about five seconds. And I'm like, man, I wish this thing would stop vibrating. It's so annoying. Unless that was my kid. I'd want all of you to leave whatever we're doing right here and start looking for my kid. No, no questions asked. Even if I had multiple, some of you have multiple kids, like you would never say, well, I got three. What's a fourth? Let it go. Like, we tried. We got 75%. Isn't that good enough? Like, I've got four kids in my family. And just picture if I, as the oldest, said, you know what, my sister Jordan, I mean, she's beautiful. She's super nice. That's awesome. But we'll find her at another point, okay? I'm a little busy, all right? I've got this meal going, okay? That's exactly what we do. We have that thing that psychology calls the bystander effect. When there's an emergency or problem or you see someone with a broke a flat tire on the road, everyone drives by. Like I recently had a flat tire. I can't tell you how many people passed me because everyone in their mind says, I got stuff to do. Or they're like, well, someone else is probably nicer than me. <laughs> we'll stop. That's how I think. Also, I don't know how to change a tire. So that was a learning curve for me. Okay. First time there I was. And I was like, please, Lord, I have to look completely desperate here. Like, and nobody, like I had to call a friend and be like, I'm doing this. I want you to come confirm my work, okay? I will watch you, moral support. But it's that bystander effect of everyone else just zoom by down 131. They're like, well, someone else will get it. Someone else will help that poor guy. Someone else will figure it out. But if that's you, or flip it around with the Amber Alert, if that's your kid, we're flipping the house over. We're shutting down church right now to go find that kid because nothing else matters except zero lost people. Zero people who are living apart from a relationship with Christ. I want to invite Brendan up, and we're going to do something that's kind of unique. We're actually going to sing, uh, let, let him lead and sing over us as a part of this. And I want to just encourage him up, but I want to say a few things before we go into the song. The first is, what does wheelbarrow faith look like for you today? 
There's probably a, a, a variety of things for all of us. And I sense that God is faithful and kind and his spirit speaks. So he's already probably got something that's stirring in your heart. What does this look like? Is it reputation? Is it your money? Is it where you live? Is it the car you drive? Is it a relationship that's broken that you just don't really want to heal? What is it? What, does we, what would the risk look like? What would take God's power to accomplish? What are you stepping out and believing him to do? What is the risk you're willing to take? Because if I'm honest, and God's really thrown this metaphor around in my soul the past couple weeks, it was funny, I was joking with David who preached last week and I was like, bro, I almost kicked you off. and like, let me get up there. Like, I got something I wanna share. But as God stirred this in me this week, if I'm honest, I, I feel pretty competent doing things like preaching, praying, leading a staff meeting, praying with you before surgery or writing you an encouraging note or doing pastoral Jesus-y things. I feel pretty competent in that. Here's why I don't feel competent. When we pray and we seek God about a facility, that the numbers when we talk about it are way, way bigger than my personal bank account, I feel incompetent. When it comes to your friends and family who you wanna see come to Christ that I have zero control over, I wish I could control it, but I feel totally incompetent to reach them puts me in the wheelbarrow, puts me in a place of risk because I can't control it. And I am a bona fide control freak. <laughs> I wish I could. I wish I could. There's people in my direct family, my immediate family, who I want to see come to Christ and I could share my faith with them till my mouth is blue and it may not affect them. That puts me in the wheelbarrow. Because I can't do it. I feel incompetent feels too big for me. And my step of getting in the wheelbarrow is something really simple as, it's, well, not simple, something as maybe simple to you, really big deal to me, of actually buying a house. Of saying, God, no matter what the future holds, no matter if you bless what I'm trying to do, no matter where we end up with buildings, no matter where we end up with lost people, no matter what you want to do through our ministry to the hurting, I'm gonna put my roots down and I'm here and you can use me however you wanna use me, but I'm not going anywhere. And two and a half years later, I, I've wrestled with that because there's been days where I'm like, did I miss something? Like I thought this is what we we're supposed to do. And even in Lindsay's work and her role, as amazing as it is, there's been moments she comes home and she's homesick right now, by the way. She didn't skip because I'm talking about her. But she comes home and she's like, man, today has been hard. Did I miss something? Are we not doing enough? Are we, or have we missed the boat on what God's calling is? And us getting in the wheelbarrow and praise the Lord. Thank you for praying for us. We got an offer. We're moving in a couple weeks. I can't wait. As much as I love apartments and, and secondhand marijuana, I'm very excited, okay? <laughs> All right? <laughs> is that honest enough for you? As much as I have compassion for people that smoke, just don't do it under my deck, all right? I have compassion for those people, but I struggle, okay? I'm just being honest. So me getting in the wheelbarrow is like, God, I'm gonna jump out in faith. 
I believe if I buy a house, you're going to provide. You're going to make it happen. I can trust you. And it's like 10 minutes away from here. I couldn't have asked for a better situation. I just, I couldn't have asked for it. So we're stepping out. Say in a couple weeks, we're here. Our kids are going to grow up here. We can't want our kids to grow up in this church. We want to be a part of it. We're not going anywhere. So we're going to put roots down, but it's a wheelbarrow for us. I don't know what your job is like, but pastoring can feel very uncertain. I'm saying no matter what, I'm going to take a step out. I'm going to risk. I'm going to go for it. And that has come really to bear on this whole issue of tithing for us. Because for Lindsay and I, we decided day one, I said, even like our premarital counseling, the, the months leading up to it, I said, here's one thing I feel convicted about, that we need to give 10% of our income. I don't care if you talk about gross, net, whose income, err on the side of generosity when it comes to that conversation, okay? We just said we're gonna give 10%. We're not just gonna give 10. We're believing that God, when we get in the wheelbarrow with him, is gonna allow us to raise that 1% every single year we're married. We've been married almost six years. That doesn't get easier, by the way, okay? But we've said we're committed to it. We're gonna give it. We're gonna show generosity because God has been generous to us. And this is not, trust me, I'm not trying to toot my own horn here. But we believe that when we step out into the wheelbarrow, you're gonna meet us right where we're at. And we've never gone hungry. We've never been too cold. We've never uh, struggled with cars for an extended period of time, right? We've never had any issues that were life-threatening. Okay, my dad had a heart attack on Tuesday. That's life-threatening. We've never had a situation that's felt like that urgent. He's taken care of us. We've been in the wheelbarrow with him. But even today, he's saying, John, are you willing to get back in there? There's been moments the last month where I feel like it'd be really nice to just sit back and kind of rest. Like my car has cruise control. <laughs> That's kind of what I want to do sometimes with my faith and just put it in the back, just rest, kick the seat back. If I had a Tesla, I'd say it'd drive itself, okay? I don't, if I did. I just want to be comfortable sometimes. And yet the call for me and the call for you, every single one of us is get in the wheelbarrow. Wheelbarrow faith is what you were built for. It's what we were built for. And here's the reality, friends. God has called us to an incredible mission, an incredible table, an incredible kingdom. But right now, and you see the bulletin, you know, we're about five months away from having to dip into cash reserves in our bank account as a church. We're $15,000 behind where we need to be to end in the black this year. This is not fatalistic. And I, it's a mere 15,000. You know why it's a mere? That seems like a big chunk of money to me. And I, if I could write a check and just put it in, I would, but I can't. I say mere, because do you think God's paralyzed by $15,000? Seriously, do you? I don't. Do you think God's paralyzed by the family issues that you have right now? And he's just like, well, it's just too much. Do you think God looks at your marriage that looks good on the inside, on the outside, but it's pretty rough on the inside? It's just, it's too hard. I'm sorry, guys. You're on your own. He, he doesn't do that. We serve an incredible miracle working God. Do you think God is paralyzed by that? But here's what I believe he's challenged me with. I, I sense this is for us. But I need us to be praying and inviting lost people to center church. Not because I want more people in here, but because God wants more people in his family. There's some people who may never accept the gospel message without you inviting them. It doesn't happen. 
I need us to make it a point to show up each weekend on Christmas and engage it with our whole heart. See, for some, for some of us, there's a lot of things that get in the way. And I'm not hammering down on attendance, but it is important that you're here. When you're not here, you are missed. You are the church, right? It's not this building. It's not what we're doing. It's not what John says is important. You are the church. We are the church. It's important that you're here, that you worship with reckless abandon, that we stop caring about what other people think. If we can't be bold and upfront and expressive in this room, don't expect that to happen in other places. It starts right here. I need us to demonstrate radical generosity. For some of you, that's upping it by 1%. For some of you, you're like, I've never trusted God with my money. In fact, I'm skeptical about the church. I don't know if they even deserve my money. And chances are there's a lot of conversations we can have that still may not convince you. I'm just saying get in the wheelbarrow and trust him. There's, there's systems and safety and security. I believe your money is well stewarded when you give to Center Church, but I can't make you get in the wheelbarrow. That system cannot make you get in the wheelbarrow. That $15,000 did not just magically appear. God wants to use you and use me. We serve a big God who can do miracles, and I want to be a part of one with you. That doesn't happen right here. It only happens right here. When we say, God, I trust you. You can have my life. You can have my resources. You can have my kids, my relationships, my house. Zero lost people only happens in the wheelbarrow. And so I want Brendan to sing this song. He actually, it's funny that you're going to play it because you think he showed it to me. He showed it to me a couple years ago. I can't, I can't stop thinking about it. And I want him to sing it over us. And I want to encourage you in this moment, who is the person that you would risk it all to see come to Christ? Maybe it's a kid. Maybe it's a grandparent. Maybe it's a best friend. Maybe it's a coworker. We can pray and ask God all, but he's asking us today to get in the wheelbarrow with him to risk something, to sacrifice, to lay it on the line, say, God, I have nothing, and that's how I feel. I have nothing, but I'm going to give it to you, and I'm going to hop in here, <laughs> not physically, but spiritually. I'm going to hop in here and allow you to work through it and, and just watch what you do. And so I want you to think about that, and after the song is wrapped up, I've got a way I think we can respond together. I think that's going to lead us into that journey even deeper, but I'm just going to invite him to sing. I don't even think the words are going to be up here. I just want you to listen to pray, to reflect, to think, who is that person I would risk it all to see return to their first love?